Today, I sit down with the author and executive producer of this podcast, Lenny Grimaldi. Lenny wrote the book, Chased, which this podcast is based on. For the next few episodes, I did a wide-ranging interview with Lenny and his experience writing and reporting on this important story that came to define Bridgeport, Connecticut in the 80s and 90s. You're 33 years old. You write this book. What happens next in your career? Get me, get me your career from post Billy Chase to when you get into politics. So, right around the time I wrote Chase, it came out, uh, and, and it was fine. It was great. I mean, I, I got this, I've got this commercial book and getting some attention, and it kind of, kind of cool. What you want? Um, I really didn't make much money off of it. I decided I wanted to start making money, you know, and uh, I had, you know, my early career as journalism. Um, during that period of time, it was a young man. I was very, very lucky. Um, my early 20s, I was a contributing writer to the New York Times, wrote for Connecticut Magazine and Yankee Magazine, uh, New York Post and, you know, different different publications, just hustling. So I, did, I had a freelance career of, of writing. Um, but then I, it, it segued into um, marketing, communications, PR, political consulting. Um, I, I'm a political animal. You know, I like I like politics. It's sports for me. It's like Yankee baseball. You know, that, that's a that's a real kick for me. You know, a lot, so I started getting involved in, in political campaigns and then consulting on campaigns. And um, next thing I know, uh, by 1994. Here after this, not too long after this book comes out, I'm working for Donald Trump, being his eyes and ears in Connecticut, and my life's never been the same since. So. <laughs> um, walk me through your work with uh, Joe Gannum. How do you meet Gannum, and, and tell me a little bit about that story. Um, Joe Gannum, um, a national comeback story. Uh, Joe Gannum was a young man, um, elected mayor, uh, age of 32 years old. Uh, in, in 1991, um, I met him when I was a reporter. We hit it off, good relationship uh, in the 1990s. Um, I was his political guru. I, I managed all his races, his, his race for governor in 1994. Uh, I managed, um, and that was kind of my entree to Donald Trump. Um, Trump was interested in doing um, a development in Bridgeport, particularly a casino. And Trump's attitude was, if there's a casino in Connecticut, I want it. If I ha if I can't have it, I want to kill it. And his big con competitor at the time was Steve Wynn, the neon light Las Vegas Steve Wynn. And Trump hated him passionately, right? They hated each other. Um, so there was a debate about adding a another casino in the state of Connecticut, in addition to the two tribal nation casinos in Connecticut, very, very popular. Um, so, you know, Gannon was meeting with Trump, talking about a potential casino for Bridgeport. And, um, you know, one day, uh, Gannon calls me up and says, hey, you want to go meet Donald Trump? I said, sure. You know, we get in a, get in a car and, you know, get down there and, uh, you know, meet Trump. And, uh, and uh, you know, he, uh, you know, Trump was really turning on the flash, you know. Uh, he, he gave us a tour of all of the different haunts. You know, uh, we went, it, it ended up at the night. It was, um, 
He says, let's go to, we're having a party for the Wilhelmina modeling agency. Why don't you go meet all the Wilhelmina models, you know? And they're just these gorgeous girls all over the place. And the lights are flashing. There's this purple haze and, you know, and uh, it, Ganem and I are, Trump are yucking it up. And, uh, you know, Trump looks at Ganem and me and says, you'll never have this kind of fun with Steve Wynn. <laughs> Is that right? He said that. That's exactly what he said. That's exactly what he said. And so um, within... A few months after that, I was working for him. And I worked for him about four years. I worked for Trump for four years, yes. So what ultimately happens with that casino deal? Well, so in Connecticut, um, Governor Lowell Weicker signed a compact, an agreement, with the Mashantucket Pequot Nation, which stated clearly that they'd be gaming partners with the state of Connecticut. Um, the state of Connecticut would receive 25% of the slot take in exchange for exclusivity. That starts it. And then Mohegan Sun comes along, and, and its tribal nation, a few years later, I think 94 or 5, somewhere on there. Um, same agreement. So essentially, the state of Connecticut cut a deal for 25% of the slot take for exclusivity. And it's hard to break that compact. Very difficult. So anytime anyone wants to do a commercial, non-tribal casino, the compact gets in the way. And um, you know, it, was, it was really hot and heavy in, in the mid-90s about another casino. It just couldn't materialize because of that compact. That compact's still in place. Oh, yeah. Is it really? Is that why you have not seen any other casino development here in Connecticut? And was that in perpetuity, this compact? Correct. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't break the compact. Wow. Um, So if if, if, if the only way to break the compact would be, it'd have to be a casino who have to pay off the tribal nations a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's been efforts been a lot of effort. So, I mean, I think, you know, Connecticut has two casinos they're very successful casinos. Um, but even as, as of a few years ago, you had NGM that wanted to come in and, and do a casino. And there were efforts to try to get the legislature to overturn the compact. Um, but the power of the casino money from the tribal nations is huge. It's a big chunk of change um, that you know, state lawmakers, in the end, didn't want to mess with. I mean, unless, like, it, okay, so if MGM was going to come in, they'd have to have some kind of agreement, right? MGM would have to, MGM was trying to persuade um, the state that we're going to make so much money for the state, you can break the compact, right? And in the end, they said, well, the numbers just don't add up. And then, you know, you saw it happen. I mean... The COVID hit and everything just stopped and died and and the casinos were hurting deeply and now they're back, apparently back on the upswing again. You know, the economy improving and people going back. But yeah, I mean, I mean, good grief, I think a casino in Bridgeport, Connecticut would have been huge because, you know, what Trump liked about it was, you know, all of Trump's casinos then, he's pretty much out of it now, his casinos were all in Lenox City. Steve Wynn you know, was the godfather of Las Vegas gaming and Trump, Atlantic City. 
But Trump felt like if there's a casino in Bridgeport or Fairfield County and I don't control it, it's going to cannibalize my casinos in Atlantic City. You know, people in, you know, Fairfield County with all that money, they wouldn't be going on to AC. You know, Atlantic City, depending on where, where you are in the state of Connecticut, it's, you know, two and a half to three hours, maybe even more, depending on where you are in Connecticut. Where if you had a casino in the backyard of the Connecticut Gold Coast, ka-ching, 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 right? And that's one of the things that Steve Wynn liked about it, and, and, and Trump as well, but it never got done. Bridgeport, Connecticut, where this story takes place and Billy's story takes place, where is it today, 30 some odd years after Billy Chase's story? What is similar? What has changed? What are the, some of the same issues are going on? What's your analysis of that? Somewhat. It's much less violent. When Billy was working the streets of Bridgeport, it was an extraordinarily violent place. Um, 50 to 60, 65 murders a year versus what you have today. Um, so I think the city law enforcement-wise is, is in a better position, in part because of Billy Chase, but still with a lot of challenges. As, as, as we've talked, the challenges of recruiting men and women to the police department because it's not a coveted profession as it used to be. Um, and and that's, that's one of the real challenges and, you know, training as well. I think the city on a whole uh, is in a much better position than it was um, in the 1980s and, and the crack epidemic was just awful. And in, in having been around in terms of the, that, that period of time, did the politicians really understand or know how to deal with that? No. Again, it just, it just hits you. It's like a baseball bat to the knees. That's what cocaine, crack cocaine was the city of Bridgeport. It was a mob guy taking a baseball bat to some guy's knees, you know, who owed him money. You know, a lot of it is, you know, this world of, you know, wimpy politicians who want to be tough on drugs and, and tough on crime. And, you know, back then it was like you had you had guys um, that were jammed up on, a, a, you know, chicken shit deal, you know, small marijuana buys and going to jail for it. And look at it now. And the government, the government figured out, OK, we'll, we'll make money off of it. Right? Even gambling back in the old days, they were going after mobsters for gambling. And then the government said, hey, we want some of the action too. Right? They get the hypocrisy of governments throughout, throughout history. Oh, gambling. Oh, I'm going to put you guys away because you're gambling. Oh, shit. Maybe we'll make money off it too. Oh, we're putting you away for drugs? Okay. Maybe we'll make money off it too. Right? And so you have states now, the biggest, you know, Connecticut is one of the biggest bookies in the United States. Right? With all the gambling that goes on in other states as well. And now they're finally, you know, relaxing, at least on, on marijuana laws, you know, saying, oh, we finally figured out we can make money off of it. Right? Rather than putting people away, which is talk about taxing a system. All these guys are just being jammed up doing federal time on these small, basically, buys. Uh, and a lot of the bigger guys weren't being taken out. Billy was the guy who took out the big guys. Billy wasn't going after your, your, your street corner, you know, mule. Billy went after the big guys and got them. And, it, and he paid a price. And policing today and the corruption within police departments versus back then, what, 
what would you say? It's more nuanced. There's more, there's cameras everywhere. That can be good and bad. Uh, you have a lot of cops, body cameras, cameras in cars. I think, I think by and large, it's good. Uh, I, I think what you what you had back then is um, a lot more of cops taking things into their own hands with individuals, being free with their hands. You know, they call it frontier justice. We think you're a bad guy and we're gonna take you back and we're gonna beat the crap out of you until you bleed. And I saw it happen, right, as, as, as a young reporter and how it was done. I think today, cops, bigger, they're stronger, um, uh, frustrated, that they don't have the latitude to do what they you know, want to do, law enforcement-wise, and frustrations kick in, and bad things happen, and we, we've seen it. I mean, even when you've got a camera in your damn car, you got a camera on your body, and you're still beating the crap out of somebody. <laughs> what, does that, what does that tell you? So people, I mean, you know, white cops are beating up black cops for a long, long time, and no one saw it. And now we're seeing it come to light because of cameras. And it's just not. It's also black and brown people and black on black, too. We're seeing, you know, in a recent case. Yeah. One final question. You spent a lot of time with Billy and got inside of his head in a way in writing the book and you can hear it on the tapes that are in the podcast. It's a, it might be a hard question, but what do you think was going on the, that last day of his life when he decided to grab a gun and go to his fiance's place of work and, and shoot her and then shoot himself? What do you think was going on in his head? Billy's mind was like a Ferrari going 200 miles an hour. He had difficulty oftentimes calming his mind. I think there were times he got there his trigger points on relationships started building. Uh, lack of a better word, failure after failure after failure, relationship-wise. Um, look at my career. Where is my life going? I can't maintain my relationships. Um, very, very frustrated. As gifted as Billy was um, in communicating with strangers, he had a difficulty communicating with people intimate in his life. And it, and it happened over and over. And it just built and built. And then there was this explosion where he said, this is it. Think about it. You know, he, he ambushes her in the car. She comes out of work gets in her car, he jumps in, he empties his gun, reloads it, and shoots himself in the head. So he knew, he knew what he wanted to do. Um, did Billy consciously empty his gun knowing that she'd be alive? Who does that? I don't know. I mean, it's like he just, you gotta think he just went in there and, and for whatever reason didn't hit any, hit any major arteries, right? But did I mean enormous damage to her and Harriet that she'll never be the same. He reloads the gun and kills himself. So, and that and that's it. On 
one last thing, and I, I didn't think about this because he was so young. Was there ever any talk that he could go back into law enforcement in another city? Or was it he was he was mentally and physically done? Well, Billy was underground for, for a long time. I mean, so one of the things we were able to do, you know, we covered that there was no, there's, there's no um, system to protect cops from, you know, bad guys who want to get, you know, receive retribution. No witness protection program for cops. But what we were able to do was piece together with contacts to get him a new name, um, a new social security number, a new license, pieced together by people just, you know, people who knew him. He wanted a peace of mind to have something. There's no system in place, um, no structure in place to be able to give him new new identity. We had to we had to manufacture it through contacts, state police, health department. Can you help this guy out? You know, I went to the head of the health department in Birchport. He said, can you get this guy a new, a new birth certificate, a new name? You know, and someone in law enforcement, state police, got him a new license. This wasn't organized in, in a systematic way. There's no program. It was just us piecing stuff together to give him a new name. So his name became Dexter Levin. When he left Bridgeport, um, he lived under the name Dexter Levin. Everyone knew him as Dexter. You know, friends that he introduced me to in his new life, you know, he was Dexter Levin. So I had to call him Dexter. I didn't call him Billy, you know, when I met people, you know, that he had met. Um, so he, he really spent a lot of time being just very quiet, um, didn't want to have a lot of notoriety. He did come back to promote the book, um, but it was, you know, kind of very clandestine. It wasn't notify people. You know, I, I called some media contacts that he's going to be here. You know, he's going to be here. And he's got, we've got this small window if you want to interview him. Um, and that's what we did. But after that, he just went back and resumed his life as uh, Dexter Levin. And that's what he never, he never entertained the thought of being Billy Chase again. He felt he could never do that. His name was Dexter Levin, not Billy Chase. And what was your sense for and what was your sense from other people within law enforcement that you spoke to who might have been the biggest threat to kill Billy if they found him? The line was long. <laughs> it was a long line. Different attempts, different people. You just couldn't, you just couldn't pinpoint it. Um, there, there were a lot of, a lot of attempts on him. Um, cutting the brake lines in his girlfriend's car. I mean, shooting up his house. Um, I mean, just there are other there are just other episodes. I mean, um, you know, Ron Bailey, who we work with, would, he would tell me there's, you know, shortly after I wrote the book, there are contracts on Billy Chase's life, and uh, you know, a story that always stays with me is um, when the book came out. Uh, I did I did it signing at Walden Books in, in Trumbull, Connecticut, that's outside of Bridgeport, 
well, big bookstore. You know, Waldo's was a big brand back then, and the book had just come out, and you know, had a little bit of notoriety, not a lot, but you know, Walden Books um, um, booked me to do um, a signing, and then got death threats. You know, you do this book signing, we're gonna build the place up. And so then the office called and said, we're, you know, this is not good, we're gonna cancel it. And I said, I said, you know, they're probably blowing smoke, but what if I have security there? You know, um, I said, all right, but something happens, it's on you, you know? But, so I, I called Ron Bailey and I said, Ron, can you be there? Because, you know, all the, all the bad guys that, you know, that Billy put away, um, they knew Ron. And um, when I walked into Walden Books, the line was literally out the door of people that Billy had investigated. Went to jail, came back out. Um, you know, uh, remnants of the number one family all lined up. And uh, Bailey was right by my side. You know, it, you know Bailey was kind of just one of those guys you just don't want to mess with. I think it was more curiosity. You know, I think they, you know, they got called out, blow some smoke, threaten. Um, you know, had a lot of guys who wanted Billy. And I think out of curiosity, they showed up to see, you know, who's the author of the book. But I, it felt, it felt a lot better for me to have Ron Billy by my side. And he wasn't even a trooper. He just, he just did it and asked me for anything. And, you know, we got through it. Lenny Grimaldi has written hundreds of newspaper and magazine articles about police work, politics, and organized crime. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the New York Post, TV Guide, to name a few. He is the author of two previous books, Only in Bridgeport and Greater Bridgeport Italian Style. Maybe that's another podcast, Lenny. Thank you. 